0: Welcome to the Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue
1: to see jobs created
0: rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies. Hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason
2: that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done
0: over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show.
1: Wharton Undergrad has several co-sponsors for this event, including Ben Franklin Scholars Program, Joseph Wharton Scholars Program, Penn Women's Center, Penn Wharton Public Policy Initiative, and Wharton Women. Collaboration like this demonstrates the very best of Penn. And we thank all of you for helping us today to gather and explore this intersection of policy and markets and maybe even gender. I'd like to acknowledge a few people by name, Tracy Snyder and Erin Dehony in managing this event. Uh, the Zellerback staff for hosting us in this excellent venue. A shout out to Brandon Lee, Joseph Wharton Scholar, whose initiative led to the chain of invitations that brought these two people to the stage. So thank you, Brandon. Uh, And last, many thanks to Utsav Sherman, who is the director, the administrative director of Wharton Research and Scholars Programs. And his energy resurrected this long dormant Howard Crawley Memorial Lecture Series. So who is Howard Crawley? The lecture series was named with a bequest from Mrs. Ethel Roberts Crawley, in honor of her late husband, Howard. He was a Penn graduate, class of 97, that's 1897. He majored in biology and labored at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. An article from the Daily Pennsylvanian in 1939 explained that this new Crawley lecture series provided, and I quote, one of the few outlets that we as students have to the outside world, Too many of us are so deeply immersed in studies and campus activities that we drop contact with the world. So apparently the pen bubble was a thing then, too. The article continued, and I quote again, Students who attend these lectures have the rare privilege of getting headline stuff from the men who make the headlines. So you may not be surprised to hear that the roster of speakers over the 30-some years that this series ran was indeed all male and likely all white but you may be impressed to hear that included luminaries such as pollster George Gallup in 1939, Supreme Court Justice William Brennan in 1956, Senator John F. Kennedy in 1957, and consumer advocate Ralph Nader in one of the final lectures in 1972. This year's rebirth of the Crawley Lecture Series allows us to celebrate a more inclusive set of 21st century leaders. Last Friday, we heard from uh, the president of an HBCU, D- D- excuse me, Dr. Michael Sorrell of Paul Quinn College in Dallas. But today, it is my privilege and honor to introduce our esteemed guest, Dr. Janet Yellen, in conversation with our very own Professor Jeremy Siegel. Let me say a few words uh, about each of them. Jeremy Siegel is the Russell E. Palmer Professor of Finance at Wharton. He is a beloved teacher and mentor, and his books, "Stocks for the Long Run," was voted as one of the ten best investment books of all time. Professor Siegel is a frequent interview subject on networks like CNN, CNBC, and NPR, And today we look forward to seeing him on the opposite side of the interview table. Dr. Janet Yellen. Dr. Yellen is a trailblazing macroeconomist whose contributions to society are lasting and broad. She was appointed chair of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System by President Obama in 2014 and completed her term last month. During her tenure, the U.S. unemployment rate dropped from 6.7% to 4.1%. Previously, Dr. Yellen served as vice chair of the Fed President and CEO of the San Francisco Fed, and chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Her extensive record of public service is complemented by her award winning teaching and research. She is professor emerita at Berkeley's Haas School of Business, and she had prior affiliations at Harvard and London School of Economics after receiving her PhD in economics from Yale. Dr. Yellen is now a distinguished fellow at the Brookings Institution in the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy. She has been cited as one of the most powerful people in the world, and how lucky are we to have her with us today? Please join me in heartily welcoming both Dr. Yellen and Professor Siegel. Welcome.
2: Well, thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, Janet, for joining us today. Uh, This, by the way, I I believe is your first lecture outside of Washington since you've uh, stepped down.
3: That's right. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for inviting me. Um, It's really, it's a pleasure to be here with all of you today.
2: Um, I guess it's going to be in in two days, your successor, uh, Jay Powell, will be chairing the meeting and then facing the press conference that follows it um, that you did for four years. How does it feel? Um, the position of chair of the Federal Reserve has been called by some to be the second most powerful position in the world after the presidency. Uh, you had the security. Uh, the financial markets would glom onto every word you said. I mean, any even the tone that you used. Was that, you know, is that bullish? Is that bearish? Everything. Um, there must be a little bit of relief stepping down from that level of scrutiny, but uh, is there a little bit of missing the spotlight also? And what do you plan to do in your, in your future?
3: Well, thanks for that question. Let me say that Serving as chair of the Fed and before that in other senior posts was an honor and a privilege. And um, it was a job I loved. Um, I um, very much enjoyed it, but as you said, there was a high degree of stress associated with it. And uh, particularly on Wednesday, my successor will be hosting his first press conference following a two-day meeting that starts tomorrow and walking into a press conference. And there is considerable stress associated with being prepared for that, um, knowing that you need to properly communicate the main message that comes out of the FOMC meeting and knowing that markets hang on your every word So um, this was certainly a day like today, would have been a day of uh, a great deal of preparation and stress for me if I were still there. Um, But it's a wonderful job and I think a privilege to serve with a terrific group of people doing work that's tremendously important. Um, I've not yet taken a vacation. I moved to Brookings. My um, term ended on... Saturday morning, February 3rd, uh, at 10 o'clock, and on Monday morning at nine, I walked into Brookings and began a new And no life.
2: security detail.
3: No security detail. <laughs> um, the Fed chair, but not other members of the Fed, um, do have pretty intense security, and uh, it's sort of 24-7 protection, similar to high-level government officials and um, in some ways it's a relief uh, to have a bit more independence, and um, it's a wonderful group of people who are involved in um, protecting the Fed chair, but um, that level of protection also has a bit of the feeling of being in jail, with lovely jailers, but uh, nevertheless a bit in jail, and um, I do have a a newfound sense of freedom and independence, but um, I've settled in at Brookings. Um, I'm part of the Hutchins Center, which focuses on monetary and fiscal policy. Um, I have quite a few colleagues close to me who have knowledge of the Fed, including my predecessor, who has the office next door to me, and Don Cohn, who was vice chair, who's uh, next to Ben. So they jokingly refer to us as the FOMC, as an Former open market committee, <laughs> and uh, I, I do have a very good group of colleagues, and I hope over time to contribute to public understanding of issues surrounding monetary and fiscal policy and the economy.
2: Tell us a little bit about your your path to economics and and, and public policy and um, education and uh, process by which you got your interests that you do.
3: Sure. So. I didn't really know much about economics in high school. Um, I, didn't, I don't recall that there was economics in my in in our our high time, school. By the way, Jan
2: and I are almost exactly the same, same. age. So we're, we're contemporaries, and there was no economics in high school um, back then. And in fact, economics was not considered a first-year college course. It was mostly even a second-year college course where you would first, first be exposed to. That material
3: well, I fortunately was exposed to it in my the end of my freshman year. I took oh. econ one oh, okay you. but I went to Brown and I think I must have written down um, in my when I entered that I wanted to major in math so I'd I always enjoyed math and mathematical kind of logical reasoning um, but then I had this early exposure to economics and That was really love at first sight, and I was hooked. Because what I really liked about it was, here was a a subject that used logical, rigorous analysis and methodologies that involve quantitative analysis. And that was what appealed to me about math. But here was a subject that was profoundly concerned with human welfare. And that combination really appealed to me. Um, A subject that let me um, use my um, analytic skills um, but to contemplate questions that are of first order importance to um, society. Um, Well-being, the operation of labor markets, opportunity, inequality, and So I loved that combination and decided to major in economics. Um, When I graduated from Brown in my senior year, I was applying to graduate schools. And um, James Tobin, who was a professor at Yale, visited Brown, gave his seminar. Uh, At the time, I was trying to decide where to go. And I thought he was terrific. I knew he had served on Kennedy's Council of Economic Advisors. He was famous for that. I loved the work that he was doing, and I decided to go to Yale. Um, I never took any time off between being an undergraduate and going to graduate school, and I think that's less common now. Um, And I guess when I look back on it, in some ways, contemplating my career, and I'd say if I had any difficulty, it was making it transition from being a student studying economics to um, doing research and making that the full-time focus rather than studying and teaching. Um, nowadays, lots of students who are contemplating a PhD will spend a year or two serving as research assistant. We have a wonderful program at the Fed Um, research assistant program students. Typically, econ majors will come for a year or two. Brookings also hosts um, students for a year or two as research assistants, and I think that's tremendously valuable. Um, First of all, you really work closely with economists on uh, research projects. You see what it is to um, design a project and to carry it out, understand the challenges, the sense of fulfillment, sometimes the frustrations that go with that. And people get um, that exposure, I think, helps people to decide, is this really the right thing for me? Is this what I want to spend my life doing? Sometimes the answer is no, but that's not a bad thing either. So I actually strongly recommend that to people. But I didn't do that. I went directly to graduate school. I had a wonderful experience. Yale was a very lively place at the time. Tobin and his colleagues were doing exciting research. Uh, Tobin served as my thesis advisor. I also worked with Joe Stiglitz. Um, I ended up writing a theoretical thesis about unemployment in open economies. Um, I served as a teaching assistant to Tobin and uh, had a generally very... um, Very good um, experience as a graduate student. And um, the transition, I think, into doing full time research was um, one that for me required an adjustment, but that is a transition I made and went on to have an academic career then after that.
2: I wanted to follow up on on your association with James James Tobin. Um, uh, As I mentioned a couple years ago, we had Ben Bernanke who went to MIT uh, uh, eight years later. Uh, And uh, under the tutelage of Stan Fischer, vice chair of the Fed, and we're going to get into some of those topics a little later, um, he got very interested in monetary policy through reading the monetary history of the United States. And he appeared at Milton Friedman's 90th birthday party, famous, well-known... Friedman was there looking at Friedman and saying, and this is well before the financial crisis, in fact even before the buildup of of the uh, uh, subprime credits and all those problems, he, he said, what you've taught us is, yes, uh, the Fed did fail in the 1930s. We learned from your research. We promise you that we will not fail uh, again. Um, now, Friedman was uh, Politically, on the opposite side of James Tobin. Um, Monetary monetarism, um, which Friedman thought monetary policy was the one, the the beginning and the end of successful policy. Uh, Tobin was much more Keynesian and saying there's a lot, monetary policy could be important, but there's fiscal policy, there's a lot of other things, and they would often go on at war with one another. Um, Yet, you were vice chair under Bernanke, and in fact, they often talked how similar your thoughts were about proper policy. Is that? It's interesting, given that one had praised Friedman, and, and you had studied on Tobin with such different orientations. How, how do you? How did you? How do you feel towards that?
3: So, Ben and I, I think, see the world very similarly. Um, I think Monetary History of the United States, Friedman and Schwartz, is a great book. It's something that I admired. Tobin, probably in spite of the fact that he disliked monetarism and had debates with Friedman, uh, I think he probably would have also agreed it was a great book. And I will say um, it is... Fantastic that Ben read it, that he um, understood and agreed and saw the way in which the Fed had failed the country during the Great Depression by allowing banks to fail, um, the money supply to contract, and uh, in the middle of the Depression. Focusing on withdrawing liquidity at a time when monetary accommodation was still very much needed to support a recovery. Um, I agreed with all of those conclusions, and he and I were um, totally in agreement with one another that, I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. It was a huge surprise, and as you say, um, Ben's speech to Friedman on his 90th birthday was well before the financial crisis, but having um, known about the Depression, studied it, and understood what the Fed did wrong, and having that sense before a financial crisis of, those were mistakes, and I'm not gonna ever repeat them if it comes to me, that was a huge motiv- motivator, and he and I were completely on the same page. Now, Tobin, um, whom I studied with, I, my guess is that, he, that Ben would agree with most of what was in Tobin's thought. Um, Tobin was a Keynesian economist. He had been greatly influenced by the general theory, and spent much of his career developing the policy implications of the general theory and studying financial markets, how they work, and what the relationship is, the transmission mechanism between monetary policy, the financial system, and the real economy. Um, In his early work, he developed the theory of portfolio choice under uncertainty, um, was awarded a Nobel Prize in part for that work, and my guess is that many people in this audience have um, studied the model, the mean variance approach that he um, developed uh, I suppose it could be summarized by don't put all your eggs in one basket, which really doesn't sound very profound when you put it like that, but I think this was really a great uh, a great innovation in finance theory that was also relevant to asset pricing. And generally, um, Tobin and his colleagues at Yale were interested in understanding um, the range of financial assets, how they differed, how they were priced, and how that pricing influenced real decisions and economic activity. And, for example, one of the things that Tobin stressed is that assets are really quite different and not perfect substitutes in wealth holders' portfolios. So in many models at the time. It was, for example, common to lump together long-term bonds and equity as being, essentially, there's money and everything else. And um, Tobin felt that was the wrong approach. And I would say, looking back on the policies that we followed after the crisis, the whole idea of buying long-term assets, we bought... um, $3.5 trillion worth between 2008 and 2013 or 2014. We bought $3.5 trillion worth of long-term treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities on the theory that that could have an impact in pushing down long-term rates of interest, borrowing costs, Short-term rates had already reached zero at the end of 2008, but long-term rates were over 3%, and um, these asset purchases were conditioned on the notion that there was scope through them to push down longer-term yields. And that really, in some sense, was a direct application of the kind of thinking that Tobin did. So... That was where many of his research contributions lay. He felt very strongly that um, the economy, in the absence of some government intervention to smooth out business cycles, um, was not sufficiently self equilibrating that it was capable of having um, big departures from full employment, that would not just automatically remedy themselves, perhaps eventually they would in the long run when we're all dead, but um, it would be better to have government policy to try to make sure that the economy was operating um, on a regular basis closer to full employment.
2: I think there's so much more synthesis now. People are not just extreme Keynesians or extreme monetarists. I mean... In fact, what's interesting, the new Keynesianism, which you contributed, was was saying, hey, monetary policy can do good because the rational expectation group that followed were saying, oh, government can't do anything. So sort of ironic, That's right. in, in a way, the movement of the profession sort of used then to pick a position, yes, we can do something to help the economy.
3: So I think the thinking now is close to what Tobin's thinking was then, which is that both monetary and fiscal policy affect the economy. Now, they have to be properly deployed because they can have adverse effects rather than favorable ones on the stability of the economy. But these are both tools that, under normal circumstances, have the potential to affect demand in the economy and the levels of employment and output Tobin was fond of saying that it takes heaps of Harberger triangles to fill an Oaken Gap. <laughs> and what that meant is Econ that, speak,
2: by the way. So <laughs>
3: translating out of Econ speak, an Oaken Gap is the social loss that occurs when an economy fails to put to work everybody who would like a job, and produces output that's below what it potentially could produce. That's just a social loss. It is a waste of resources and represents human suffering, and the numbers associated with that are enormous. And a Harberger triangle, well, when when, um, resources are allocated inefficiently, there are social losses associated with that, and we can measure those, too. It's
2: like when we do put a tax on something. We measure consumer surplus loss. That's right.
3: So those are called Harberger triangles. But Topin's view is if you have three, four points of unemployment above what it ought to be, and that persists for many years, you're looking at a social loss that is an order of magnitude larger than these Harberger triangles, and therefore it's very worthwhile and important to use policy to keep the economy operating at full employment. And he simply believed that both monetary and fiscal policy could ordinarily play um, a supportive role. His conflict with Friedman, which you mentioned, was that monetarism involved the view that only money matters that fiscal policy does not matter to um, nominal GDP, that only money matters. And sometimes Keynesianism is distorted to say, well, Keynesians believe only fiscal policy matters, monetarists believe only money matters, but the, the truth, truth is, is, the truth is both ordinarily, except in really extreme circumstances, both matter, and that's what most people believe, and I think it would be fair to say that's where Ben and I are and would generally agree.
2: And let me shift a little bit to, um, of course, much has been made as should be. You were the first woman chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, I think you mentioned there was maybe one other woman in your Ph.D. class at Yale. I I, I, was, I, I then thought back to my MIT, we <laughs> were same, same year, maybe three um, uh, how? I mean, how did that fact did did you feel that women had been discriminated in economic in economic policy situations, um, uh, or that they weren't welcome into the profession? Um, uh, how did you feel about being in that special role?
3: So I think it's been true, and you just alluded to that, that at all points in my career, I have found myself as a woman in a small minority. Um, Perhaps there were two women in my graduate school class. Um, During the years that I was in academia, I served on the faculty at Harvard as an assistant professor. There were two women out of probably... Um, a department of probably 50 or more. Um, There were a few more women at Berkeley, but not many. Um, In the policy positions that I've held, um, when you look around the table, there are relatively few women. And um, as chair, when I would, for example, go to international meetings um, of central bank governors, I think by one count, most recently, maybe two years ago, out of 115 central banks, um, 16 governors were women, about 10 percent. And um, that's the largest that showed tremendous improvement, because in all the years before that, um, there had only been single-digit numbers of central bank governors who were women. Um, and half the central banks in the world, even now, have no women at all, mm-hmm. either governor or on a policy board. So women are very significantly underrepresented. Now, you asked me about discrimination, and I certainly think discrimination does exist, and we're hearing a great deal about it. My, you know, My own experience has been very favorable. I can't say that I have ever experienced overt discrimination by being a, because of being a woman. And indeed, I have had um, any number of men who have been mentors to me, including Tobin, who have taken a strong interest in my career. Um, one of those mentors is actually my spouse, who is um, an economist, um, and a
2: Nobel Prize winner.
3: And a Nobel Prize
2: winner.
3: <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know, he and I. And have your had, son
2: is, a, is an economist. I've had professor. a lot
3: of uh, <laughs> men economists in my life. Um, you know, in my 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 spouse, I worked with very closely. We spent a decade doing research together and writing papers. He's. Um, We've had a very equal relationship, both in terms of our work and in terms of our family life. He's always supported my desire to um, be involved in public policy. Um, When the phone rang in 1994 and I was asked am I interested potentially in serving as a governor? It took him less than five minutes to decide, yes, we can make this work. I'll Moving go, to, to Washington. go to Washington with you. This is, this is workable. So he's been willing to make sacrifices for the sake of my career and has been a strong support. So I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate in that respect. But when I look around and I see that there are so few women, it is important to ask the question, why, why is that true? And I don't think we fully know the answer to that. But, for example, we do see that um, in universities, um, the proportion of women who major in economics is still roughly a third. It hasn't increased over time. And um, if you compare that with STEM fields, math and science fields, Uh, the representation of women is higher, It's, it's equal or more than equal. So why is it that economics has less representation? You also see it's not only true in government and in academia, but also in the private sector, that the higher up you go, the smaller is the representation of women, um, so when I go to international meetings as Fed chair and I look at the, round the table at the central bank governors and finance ministers, there are precious few women. When I look at the back benches, the people who've come to support the those participants, I see more women. The lower down you go, the more women there are. And you know this is true in academia as well. Um, the representation of women is higher at the assistant professor level than the associate or full professor level. What exactly is going on there? And it's also true in the private sector, say in Wall Street firms, that the higher up you go, the lower is the representation of women. And I do think that that represents some combination of barriers to advancement, that um, maybe it has to do with mentorship and the fact that that's important and it's more difficult for women to find role models and appropriate mentors, that it's somewhat more difficult to participate in informal social networks where ties are formed that aid one's career or facilitate collaboration and research. Um, but um, and it may be in part difficulty in some very demanding jobs of combining work and family. But um, this is a phenomenon, and I think it deserves better understanding. And, um, you know, I think it's important for the economics profession, frankly, that it be more diverse, that women be better represented, and I think it would actually make a difference to the work that we do.
2: Well, I hope, uh, certainly the service that, Janet has given, and from all corners, really praise for how you've done uh, at the Federal Reserve. Will break some of those barriers
3: Thank down you. in the future. Thank you very much.
2: Um, uh, let's. We mentioned that Jay Powell is, you know, now heading the Fed. And has first meeting starting tomorrow in a press conference. Um, what do you think are the toughest problems he and the whole? That Federal Reserve, FOMC, will face in the next four years?
3: So, I think the current state of the economy is highly favorable. Um, We've come out of a, we've been in a period of recovery from a very deep financial crisis, but we've gotten to the point where the unemployment rate is 4.1%. This is about the lowest in 17 years. Um, Other measures of the labor market um, also suggest that the labor market is going strong. I suppose one could point to a few indicators like uh, prime age labor force participation or the extent of part-time work that's involuntary that suggest a bit more labor market slack but on the other hand, you could also look at indicators that suggest the labor market is even tighter than a 4.1% unemployment rate suggests. Wages are rising at a very moderate pace. They've picked up slightly, but not seeing any real evidence of overheating in the labor market. So I think the labor market is in a very desirable state. Inflation... Um, the Fed has articulated a symmetric 2% inflation objective, and inflation has been running under 2%, um, 1.7% over the last 12 months, abstracting from food and energy, a little lower, one5 And the FOMC is projecting that inflation will move up over the next year or two back to 2%, but also has to recognize there have been many years, the last six, seven years, in which inflation has consistently, for various reasons, been running under 2%. And it's important to make sure that inflation does um, move back up to the Fed's 2% objective. And one reason it's important is um, that a low level of inflation tends to foster very low levels of interest rates. And um, if inflation expectations were to slip and fall below 2% because of a failure to achieve that 2% objective, when the next crisis, for whatever reason, or, or a next downturn comes, the Fed will be starting with lower inflation expectations and a lower average level of interest rates, and it will reduce even more than is already the case the scope to use monetary policy. So what's the Fed's job at this point? It is to foster the attainment of um, both objectives that it has, namely maximum employment and also 2% inflation or its interpretation of price stability. So I would say um, there are two two risks in doing that um, on both sides. One is the economy is growing at a probably an above trend pace right now, and um two
2: hundred. I mean, we had three hundred thousand jobs last month, and that was unusual. We're running very close to two hundred thousand. That's right. And isn't just the population only providing what seventy eighty thousand? How can we bring that down um, to a a rate that's long-term sustainable, even if there's a little bit of slack there. Maybe we have till summer, maybe late summer. What do you think?
3: Well, so maybe a pace of somewhere in ninety to 120,000 jobs a month might be sustainable. Depends exactly what assumptions you make. But 190,000 a month over the last year, um, if it continues at that pace the unemployment rate will gradually fall. Now, I still would not expect to see some dramatic pickup in inflation, but nevertheless, um, we might see inflation eventually rise. Is that when the
2: Fed has to pull to get that down to the 90 to 120? Would that be what you think has to be done then under those conditions?
3: Well, I think the Fed should and has been gradually raising rates to try to stabilize the labor market in a way, bring down the pace of job growth to a sustainable level to avoid the economy overheating. If the economy were to overheat and eventually inflation looked to be picking up um, sustainably above 2%, the Fed would be faced with tightening policy uh, perhaps more rapidly than would be ideal, and it would risk a downturn, a, re- a recession in the economy, which would be undesirable. So overheating is one risk. But on the other hand, we've had six or seven years in which inflation has been persistently running below 2%, and uh, it is also important for the Fed to achieve its 2% objective. And tightening too too quickly and failing to achieve that, as I said, that also has risks. So there are risks on both sides. Um, tighten too slowly, the economy may overheat. Um, tighten too quickly, um, perhaps inflation won't move back to 2%. And so these are the two major monetary policy or macroeconomic risk, I think that the Fed has to balance. But as you say, um, the pace of job growth now has certainly been running um, above what is sustainable in the longer term. And the trajectory has been one the Fed's articulated of gradual increases in the funds rate. I I would say another challenge the Fed faces pertains to financial stability, which is um, the Fed needs to carefully monitor the financial system to make sure that um, the seeds of a future financial crisis are not um, building. And um, asset prices are probably elevated. I, I don't think there are other obvious signs of financial excess. Um, or,
2: But you said not too elevated at once. You said that uh, you said in terms of stock prices, given the low interest rates, you, you didn't think they were at the big worry level on, on asset price. Do you still feel that way?
3: So I don't know what the right, pri- right level of asset prices is, and I guess I don't want to opine on it. But um, the, I think, in terms of typical price earnings ratios, um, what we're seeing both in the stock market, commercial real estate, other other assets, is elevated ratios in historical terms. Now, it's true that interest rates are low, and low interest rates are one reason to expect higher price earnings multiples, but perhaps they're still high even given the level of interest rates. Um, so I don't want to opine and don't know what the right level is, but that is something that um, ought, ought to be on the list of risk to the economy. But um, the financial system seems to be sound. We're not seeing evidence of growing leverage, um, core, fi- the core of the financial system, the systemically important banks, are very well capitalized and are strong Um, supervision has been strengthened measurably since the crisis. We're not seeing risks in maturity transformation that are evident. So I'd say overall assessment is the risks are moderate, but that's a risk that the Fed should keep its eyes on.
2: Uh, I want to, uh, you've written a book called um the fabulous decade with Alan Blinder who was vice chair of the Federal Reserve. Uh, The fabulous decade was the 1990s. Um, uh, Now of course it did end with the dot com bubble but one of the remarkable factors in that which you discuss extensively here was uh, the surge of productivity growth particularly in the second half of, of this decade. Now we all admire a What has happened to unemployment and job growth since the Great Depression, since the bottom of the market in June of 2009, uh, it's actually, I don't think anyone thought unemployment rate would go down as fast as it did. But, of course, what has been so extremely disappointing in this recovery has been the productivity growth. Yes. Um, And we economists seem to be having a very hard time understanding why productivity has lagged so much in this recovery? Um, you know, given your study of it in in this decade and your your thoughts. Now, again, it's this is not a direct, certainly, responsibility of the Fed, but is a major reason why real wages have stagnated yes. as well as other. What what are your concepts or ideas or hypotheses for why productivity has lagged?
3: So, I certainly agree with you that productivity growth has been very much slower than for most of the post-war period and certainly than the second half of the 90s, Um, there are some reasons that may relate to the deep downturn that we just went through. And in particular, we've had very weak capital investment, which is not surprising in a sluggish economy with a lot of unused capacity but capital accumulation has been very modest. Um, In addition, there were huge layoffs um, in the downturn and that tended to be less skilled workers as they've been hired back um, during the um, recovery that's also tended to impede productivity growth coming out of the downturn. But even abstracting from those kind of cyclical or crisis-related re- depressants of productivity, it seems that um, total factor productivity is, has fallen below the levels that we're accustomed to. Why? It's very hard to tell. Um, some people believe that simply the pace of innovation or at least the pace of innovations which show up as improvement in output um, has simply diminished, that we have not seen innovations that have the kind of payoffs of those we had early in the 20th century, like electricity. Um, another factor that may play a role is a decline in business dynamism. So some productivity growth, a significant piece, according to much analysis, reflects um, a transfer of resources between firms that are successful and growing and those that are unsuccessful and shrink or disappear. So you have kind of a Schumpeterian process that takes place in the economy of creative destruction that tends to transfer resources from less successful to more successful firms, and that is part of what causes productivity growth and By many measures that 's simply slowed down the pace of Do we business know why? i don 't think we know why no. the pace of business formation has slowed now importantly the slowdown in productivity looks to be something that had begun before the financial crisis. The other fact about it is it's not just confined to the U.S. It looks to be global, and that suggests something structural and not just crisis-related. People point to mismeasurement, and I think there is mismeasurement of prices that could mean that output growth is really properly measured would be higher than we're measuring. But to explain a productivity slowdown, you would have to argue that mismeasurement has gotten much worse. And I've not seen anyone convincingly make that case. Robert
2: Gordon of Northwestern University has written this very well-known book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, and he talks... uh, he, he could be described as a productivity pessimist going yes. forward. There are others. Joel Moker is actually in economics and history, also yep. at Northwestern. Is right. much more of an optimist. Uh, ben Bernanke, a number of years ago, when he was giving one of his uh, graduation speeches, and he said he thought we could, would come out of this so-called funk of, of productivity. Are, are you a productivity optimist or pessimist?
3: Have so you- I don't have a good reason to believe that the future will be different. Um, I admit that I don't really know why productivity's growth has slowed, but it's now been a substantial period of time, and I don't believe there is a sound reason to project that it will pick up. Of course, it could pick up, and we can hope it would pick up, but I don't see a sound reason to project that that would happen. So um, in the projections that I would write down, I would... Assume that, well, probably we would see somewhat better pro- productivity growth than we saw for many years after the financial crisis, but that it would not pick up to the historical average of early earlier.
2: Right um, on the productivity on the productivity side, um, I'd like to read a. Um, uh, oh, I, I, I do want to mention just maybe after my question here. Um, we do have microphones. That uh, any of you can think of questions for Miss Yellen. Um, we will. We, we want to entertain your questions. Uh, also, um, I want to read you something that I found very interesting in the book uh, over here, and um, <laughs> it's called "Lessons of uh, of the 1990s." Um, and um, having briefly extolled certain Rules we've learned, we hasten to add that the fabulous decade also seems to have resurrected an idea that most economists had thought had died in the 1970s. Our lesson four is it now appears that fine tuning the economy um, is at least possible. If not, we would like to know what Alan Greenspan has been up to since 1992. <laughs> uh, indeed, we nominate Greenspan. ...as the greatest fine-tuner in history. Once again, however, a caution is in order. To declare that something is possible is not to assert that it can be done easily or regularly. Successful fine-tuning requires a blend of skill and luck, and that is rare. And Alan Greenspan has had both in abundance... <laughs> but then you said maybe his luck is running out. How do you how do you stand on that? And you were chuckling as I read this. Um, what do you what do you what do you think? And uh, I mean, certainly he, he not foreseeing the financial crash or, or, or giving warnings to it. Certainly, you know, besmirched that notion that he had the all seeing eye on. Yeah. On the economy. How do you view back on that?
3: Well, when I think about Greenspan's legacy, I do deserve, think he deserves credit as the greatest fine tuner of all time. He, When he became chair, inflation was still at uncomfortable levels above 3%. And he gradually brought inflation down and stabilized it around 2% and built the Fed's. Credibility for um, maintaining inflation at a low and stable level, and he had tremendous insight into what was happening with productivity, and deserves great credit for seeing that productivity was picking up in the second half of the 90s. And what that meant was was that the economy, because of what was a profound Supply shock, favorable supply shock could enjoy um, extremely low unemployment coupled with low inflation. There were other supply shocks that were also at work the dollar, oil prices, but productivity growth was the heart of it, and Greenspan saw that inflation was not in the process of picking up. At a time when you would have thought, with the unemployment rate falling as rapidly, but that's similar to your last
2: few years as is, Fed chair.
3: That is absolutely right. I mean, we're seeing the same thing: low inflation, no, no significant pickup in inflation, with unemployment falling to very low levels. We do not have pro- productivity growth to thank to thank for that. Yeah, but. It was important there, but you mentioned the financial crisis, and of course, his shortly after his term ended, we did have the financial crisis, and looking back on it, I think, um, and Greenspan was not alone in this, so um, I don't mean to blame him and say that he alone deserves the blame, but let me just say he and we had too much faith in um, financial firms to manage their risks, in financial markets to appropriately price risks, in derivatives and the role that they would play. I think there was um, great confidence at the time that derivatives were um, serving to distribute risk to those who could best understand and bear the risk, and that financial firms Um, understood the risk that they were taking and had appropriate incentives to manage them. And I think the financial crisis really showed that all of that confidence was misplaced. And supervision of the largest financial institutions was not what it should have been. Um, At least it was um, in the aftermath of the crisis, let's say, that we've worked very hard to strengthen supervision, including using stress tests and forward-looking measures of um, capital adequacy that I think give us much better um, insight into the risks in the financial system. More broadly, um, a lesson for me is that the Fed, you know, it was started in 1913, and it was in the aftermath of a financial crisis. Um, the 1907 financial panic. And there had been a run on several banks, and a bunch of private bankers at the time, led by J.P. Morgan, got together, saw that there could be a collapse of the banking system if they allowed panic to spread, and um, depositors were beginning to line up outside banks, scared that their banks were going to fail, and they made a decision to support a number of banks to stem the panic. But it didn't seem like that type of work should be something left to a group of public-spirited private citizens. So they um, that was really the motivation for the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913. And whenever there's been a financial panic, the Fed is always there to supply liquidity and serve as a lender of last resort. But the Federal Reserve, although it's always played a key role in every financial panic, has never really had a broad-based, until recently, a broad-based program to monitor the entire financial system for emerging threats. And um, many of the threats in our recent financial crisis came from outside the core banking system, from the so-called shadow banking system, from investment banks, money market firms, um, the securitization markets, um, the mortgage market, and um, there was no broad program of financial stability that um, was directed at identifying those threats So I think that was another failing, not only of the Fed, but of um, financial regulators as a whole. And there's um, been a great deal of work since the financial crisis to make sure that we are engaged in financial stability work. Let me
2: have one more question, then I'm going to open up to the group. Um, The last three chairmen, Greenspan, Bernanke, and yourself, both have been economists both had worked on at the CEA and I think been chair of the That's CEA yes. before actually taking um, the position. And uh, our current uh, chair, Jay Powell, has taken a very different route, um, certainly also in his background. Um, I'd like to ask you whether you think that is a source of concern at all, and, and also whether the fact that... Um, um, uh, when we, Stan Fisher, who unfortunately for personal reasons had to resign last last October, you know, had the background. Actually, Stan was one year ahead of me at MIT, and um, you know, certainly one of the outstanding students. Uh, that that position is still open. And do you think, because of Jay Powell's um, background, it might be more important in the vice chair position? to have someone that has more of what we call a a, a classical economics background.
3: So economics is certainly an important part of monetary policy um, and economics expertise and forecasts and understanding of the risks is a key part of what everyone in the FOMC um, has to assess. But I would say that it is not essential to be a PhD economist to be able to make those kinds of evaluations. And um, my successor is somebody who has studied economics, and I have been very impressed with um, the depth of his understanding and his willingness. We've interacted for five years. Um, He's Uh, been on the board, we've worked together, and I have seen him dig in um, intensely to read and master and understand the economics and the forecast and the issues. And he has worked in financial markets and understanding the financial system is also an important piece of it. And so um, I do think he has the skills and background I expect him to do an excellent job as chair, and I have a lot of confidence in him. Um, but um, especially the so-called troika, you have the vice chair of the board, the vice chair of the FOMC is the president of the New York Fed. That team works together closely. And that's and an open position. That is That will also become open. Um, Bill Dudley, who's president in New York, will be... Um, stepping down right. uh, later this spring. Um, that group really needs to work together closely, and I do think it would be highly desirable um, to have someone with a very strong economics background as part of that team, um, one one, or both of those positions. But, of course, economics is important, but... Um, you know, I think one does not have to be a PhD economist to understand the economics and apply it.
2: Well, very good. Well, thank you very much. We have students standing there, so um, how about standing in the left and then go right, left, right, please. Yeah.
0: Hello. Can you hear me?
2: Yes. Yes, Hi. yes we can.
0: My name is Brian Mena I'm a senior and Warden from California. Um, my question is actually regarding the growth um, restrictions you impose on Wells Fargo. Um, do you think that future Fed chairs will further extend power and
3: perform similar actions? And also, can you provide an update on the Wells Fargo submit plan to improve board oversight and management practices? So, the Federal Reserve um, supervises bank holding companies and has to make sure that they have in place a comprehensive set of risk management controls. Um, And that's a key part of our oversight, and it's a key responsibility of the board of directors of any financial institution. And um, we put in place um, various restrictions and sanctions that are designed to ensure um, that those controls are put in place Um, when there have been significant failings. The Federal Reserve often signs uh, imposes enforcement actions on banks. Um, Wells Fargo agreed to such an enforcement action and although the cap on its asset growth is something that's unusual. It was something that was deemed appropriate given Wells Fargo's size and the significance of the shortcomings in controls in that organization, especially when there's growth. Um, It's important that the controls in an organization be shown to be operative and effective. So although that was a novel sanction, it's part of the scope of the tools available to the Federal Reserve to um, ensure appropriate risk management. And, um, you know, depending on what would happen in other organizations in the future, um, there are a range of actions that are available and that type of thing could be employed again.
0: Regarding thank the you. second part of the question, sorry, could you shed some light on the required plan that they submitted, on like how they would change over, like uh, management practices and regarding oversight?
3: Well, the, as part of the enforcement action, they are required to submit such a plan, and it will be reviewed um, by the board in due course. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, on the right, please. Right.
0: Hi, Dr. Yellen. Uh, My name is Robert Epstein, and I'm a freshman here at Penn, and also I'm an officer on the Wharton Fintech Group. Uh, So my question has to do with crypto assets. Um, So obviously, a lot of people here think that, you know, 50, 100 years from now, uh, money as we know today will not exist. Um, Does the Federal Reserve plan in the near future to, um, you know, take a lead on this and create sort of an American um, cryptocurrency, or are there no plans in place?
3: So the Fed has looked at, when you say create a cryptocurrency, it is possible for a central bank to create its own um, digital, digital currency. And um, the Fed has looked at that possibility. Many central banks around the world are studying that possibility Uh, I think the Bank of Sweden has gone further than any other central bank I'm aware of in showing an interest in possibly adopting it. Um, I think the general view in the Central Banking Committee is that um, this is is something we should be very cautious about. It could lead to very far-reaching changes in the structure of financial... Um, intermediation in the United States and other countries with a variety of consequences that might not be um, favorable ones. And it's not obvious that it would do anything at all to enhance monetary policy control. Um, It's not necessary in any way for monetary policy control. Um, We've long thought that the use of cash would diminish over time. That's actually not been um, shown to be the case. Um, U.S. dollar currency is alive and well, and demand for it has been growing at a rapid rate. So um, I'm not aware of any... um, Enthusiasm at this point on the part of most advanced country central banks to introduce their own digital currency at the retail level. Of course, there is um, an important part of the reserve base uh, of the Federal Reserve is digital in the sense of um, banks banks have accounts with the Fed, and that is not physical currency. And so that is a kind of digital um, wholesale currency. But at the retail level, um, I'm not aware of any such plans.
2: Thank you. On the left.
0: Sure. Hello. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Yellen and Professor Siegel, for coming in. It's uh, definitely an honor. My name is Harrison Beard. I'm a junior studying mathematical economics and statistics. And I just had a question Um Regarding something earlier you said that the economy is doing very well, Um, there's sort of a lot of indices, and looking at unemployment and looking at inflation, it's in a very favorable condition. Um, But, however, there's also a lot of press recently about how the economy may uh, not be in a favorable position. Namely, um, there's a few indicators, for instance, like the Case-Shiller index is at um, a very high level, um, notwithstanding the flash crash at the end of January, volatility is very low, which is... A potential concern, and um, you know, we're approaching the end of the credit cycle, as people are saying, and as we talked about earlier, price, earning, price earnings multiples are, are pretty high as well. Um, and one particular thing that I want to ask you is that um, the the Fed and the Fed is wanting to uh, taper the balance sheet of a lot of our um, long-term uh, treasury bonds as well as mortgage-backed securities, and a lot of people are saying that this could potentially cause a market crash, because um, At least what I've read, every time the Fed has tapered the balance sheet in the past, it's led to a recession. So I want to hear what your insight or what your view on that would be. Do you think the tapering of the balance sheet in the coming years is likely to lead to a recession?
3: So the Fed long ago announced that it would, after normalization of the level of short-term interest rates, was well underway it would begin a gradual and predictable process of slowly um, whittling down its balance sheet toward more normal levels. And then over time, we announced further details about how we would do that. And finally, um, last fall, we actually set the process in motion And by the time it began, it was very well understood. Um, There are no asset sales involved. Um, What the Fed is doing is, rather than when it receives principal payments on uh, treasury securities or mortgage-backed securities, it had been fully reinvesting those proceeds to keep its holdings constant it announced that subject to some caps, it would begin to redeem some of the principal, and uh, the caps have been ramping up at a very gradual pace. So the market is fully informed about how this will go. Um, I don't believe that my colleagues will be reconsidering how this will work anytime soon The idea is that once this process was triggered, it would be put on autopilot. In fact, the FOMC statement uh, in January said absolutely nothing about the balance sheet because this process is underway. It is not something that my colleagues plan to adjust, to consider at every meeting, to vary over time. That type of thing could give rise to volatility, so this is well understood by the markets. The treasury piece of it is 100% predictable. Mortgage-backed security redemptions um, depend a bit on market conditions, but we've seen no market reaction to it. Now, we do think that purchasing those assets puts some downward pressure on long-term interest rates. So you would expect that gradually over time as the balance sheet shrinks, there would be some upward pressure on term premia. But the process by which that will occur will be very gradual and over many years. And the other aspect of it is that the shrinkage of the Fed's balance sheet is likely to be substantially less than the initial purchase of assets. Before the crisis, the Fed's balance sheet, asset holdings were about a trillion dollars, and that ramped up to four and a half trillion dollars. But in the meantime, the demand for currency has grown substantially, and for a variety of reasons, while the Fed hasn't decided on its ultimate operating framework, You know, likely the shrinkage would could take it somewhere in the two to three billion dollar trillion dollar range, and not back to pre-crisis levels. Thank you. Uh, On the right here, please.
4: Hey, Dr. Yellen, thanks for coming. Thank you. Uh, So, over the last 12 years or so, through your term and through Bernanke's term as Fed chair, uh, there've been a lot of changes made at the Fed. One of those being the degree of involvement that the Fed has in fiscal policy. Uh, so my question is, first of all, uh, have you have you seen any other changes at the Fed during your tenure that you are particularly proud of and would like to highlight? And secondly, how do you expect the Fed will respond to new fiscal policies such as uh, increased trade tariffs on industrial goods? And what can the Fed do to mitigate the risk and consequences of potential trade war.
3: So there are a lot of pieces to that question. Let me start with the fiscal policy piece. You said that the Fed's role in fiscal policy had changed, and I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, I'm not positive what you meant by that, but um, the Fed generally stays out of fiscal policy. Fiscal policy is... The responsibility of Congress and the administration. And I've, myself and um, my predecessor, we've tried to stay away from giving detailed advice on how to conduct fiscal policy. Maybe a few.
4: The the response that the Fed has had to. To fiscal policy, for instance, like with with trade tariffs, uh, it can lead to higher inflation, and obviously the Fed has to react to
3: what, so with with, with trade policy. Um, so with trade policy, um, it's one of many influences affecting the economy. There's a lot of discussion now about how the administration's trade policy could affect the economy. Um, I think. Generally, the tariffs that have been recently announced would have a tiny impact of the type you're suggesting on inflation. They would push up the prices of steel and aluminum and products um, that use them. But overall, um, when you work the numbers, it's relatively little, so the impact on of what's been announced on the macro outlook is not very large. I think the larger concern is um, will there be more? Could there be retaliation? Could we see a more serious? Breakdown in trade relations between the United States and the rest of the world that would begin to have um, repercussions for the economic outlook, but I wouldn't see significant repercussions from what we have seen to date.
2: I'd like to follow up on that. I remember four years ago when you were uh, selected as chair, New York Times ran an article, and Uh, You mentioned in a long article about you and your background, you mentioned that your husband uh, and you agree (laughs) on virtually everything, although, and this surprised me, I'm a little bit more free trade than he is. Um, And it first of all surprised me, but I'm I'm just wondering, are you alarmed uh, at what what you see? Um, Is your husband thinking maybe we can negotiate <laughs> with China and uh, get somewhere on this? Uh, what I, do you think?
3: I think my husband meant that as something of a joke. But, <laughs> oh, <okay>. um, <laughs> but to the extent that there's truth in it and he said it, I, I'd say, you know, all of us who've stud, studied trade uh, agree that... Um, Removing trade barriers is generally beneficial for the country as a whole. Nevertheless, there can be losers from trade. And um, the country is better off to the extent that the gainers compensate the losers. When that doesn't happen, the distributional impacts of trade can be deleterious. And you know, we've seen rise in inequality in this country. I certainly by no means attribute all of it or even most of it to trade. I actually think technological change has probably been a more important influence. But I think we should be concerned by rising inequality and the fact that uh, at the middle and below in the income distribution We've seen stagnation of real wages and real incomes over many decades now. And to the extent that trades played a role, um, I think that's something we should worry about. That still leaves me as um, something I'm willing to call myself generally a free trader. Um, In general, when I think about the impacts of tariffs and we can see that in the discussion now um, it's often the case that you're reading, um a small group, um, even a small group of workers, possibly um, producing greater harm to other workers and to the economy as a whole. And so I continue to feel that way. But I do think he's right that the distributional consequences sometimes can be worrisome.
2: I, I see a light. Could we have one more question? Do we have time? I'm just asking... I guess I decide. Well, then we—it <laughs> was flashing a zero here, and I. But let's let's take your question. Yes.
0: Um, so I'm wondering, uh, in your view, has the Fed succeeded in achieving its symmetric two percent inflation target at any point since it was introduced, or does that target imply that PCE inflation should be around two percent on average over some sustained period?
3: Um. So I think if you go back to 1994 and look at – that's the first time I was involved in policy at the Fed. And this computation I've occasionally made, Um, the average inflation rate is awfully close to 2 percent since that time.
0: Sorry, I meant uh, since it was officially introduced. Oh, oh, sorry.
3: Oh, okay. So we officially introduced the 2 percent objective, I guess, in 2012, And inflation has been below that more or less consistently since then. And um, the objective is one that the Fed is always trying to achieve over the medium term. And so it is a concern that after so many years, inflation continues to linger below 2%. And that's why I say the Fed is very focused on wanting to get back to 2%, and it is a symmetric objective. I think there are too many people who may think that 2% is a ceiling, and the Fed is happy if the inflation rate just is somewhere below 2% and wouldn't want to ever see it go above 2%. The objective is always to be heading to get to 2%, and sometimes it's below, and sometimes it will be above. The Fed added language to its statement of longer-term goals that enunciates that objective to say it's symmetric, and the Fed would be equally concerned with inflation being below the objective as above the objective. So, I mean, we could talk, and I, I won't now about why, over all those years, what explains why, Inflation has been below 2%, but I believe my colleagues regard it as um, important that it return to 2%. But when you say you use the words 2% on average, and I would say I would do want to make a distinction here: the goal is not really 2% on average, um, because the words 2% on average suggests that if there were to be a period of, let's say, overshooting, say, suppose there were five years in which the inflation rate were running at 2.5%. To achieve 2% on average, you might say there then needs to be another period of five years in which inflation runs at 1.5% to counter that and keep the average at 2 That That... If that is not what the Fed's objective is to achieve 2% on average, that regime is known as price-level targeting, and it's another way in which the Fed could work. That's not what it's adopted. There's quite a bit of discussion taking place now as to whether or not price-level targeting would be a desirable, different regime, but I just want to emphasize that is not the regime the Fed is operating under. It's operating under a regime of wanting to always achieve 2%, but not to compensate in the future for past um, deviations, either above or below.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you. Um, I thought I'd just end with you're now. You know, at the Brookings um, Research Organization, um, you mentioned pro- potentially research. Um, uh, you mentioned to me maybe a book. Um, Possibly. and 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 of course, speaking, helping explain the positions of the, of the Fed. Are, are these these are great things to look forward to? How Thank do you feel? You.
3: Well, I'm excited about it, and. Um, I really enjoy having the opportunity. She's beginning this process
2: here. This is like the trial run for you.
3: Well, thanks. I appreciate it. It was really great to have a chance to take a dry run at doing that. And you know, I think for people to try to understand the economy, the Fed, monetary policy, it's um, appreciate your interest in it, and it's something that I'll try to promote going forward.
2: Thank you, thank you, Mrs. Yellen. Thank Thank you.
3: you,
1: stating the obvious, we've just received a master class not just in macroeconomic policy, but in broader societal issues as well. I want to thank Professor Siegel for guiding the conversation with a deaf touch and I want you to know that Dr. Yellen confided to me that one of the reasons she wanted to do her first public speaking here was this opportunity to have a conversation with you. Dr. Yellen, I... <laughs> Dr. Yellen, you, as I, I mentioned in my opening remarks, you are such a trailblazer, and we appreciate your coming here. And I, I would be remiss in my role as an undergraduate dean if I didn't comment that beyond the economic policy, beyond the demography uh, uh, and other issues that you talked about that you really demonstrated clear thinking and great communication, which every undergraduate should be working on. So we are very grateful for you for coming. I have a small token for you. Thank you so much for your visit. Thank you.
2: Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you.